Welcome to Communication on Point. I'm your host, Dean Hefta. This program is designed to bring unique insights that help you grow your leadership, your impact, and your influence. And today I'm joined by Dan Selberberg. Dan's background is far-reaching and wide-ranging, from Fortune 500 leadership to startup enterprises, from scaling consumer brands to developing leaders. He brings his insights on what it means to change our thinking and how we communicate with those around us that helps us to reach the potential of ourself and the organizations we're building. I'm excited to share this conversation with you, so let's get started. Well, Dan Silverberg, welcome to Communication on Point. It's great to be with you today, Dean. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because we are in a world of such rapid business change. You don't have to look very far down the headlines to see unbelievable new technology, companies exploding with growth, others struggling to stay alive. And the question I want to start off with is, you know, in this world where we have so much change driving how business is done and the things that we're seeing and what's succeeding, how do we as leaders or even employees in this world adapt quickly enough and understand what's going on? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. Um, I think as we've talked about, one of the things is, do we have a high level of curiosity? And as you stated, not only was the world changing and our ability to adapt being challenged, but then all of a sudden we had COVID and that's really upended probably everything that we've known. And so now I think what we're doing is we're moving from a world where we used to be rewarded for certainty, and now we should be moving to a world where at least we can gain clarity. And so within that, um, there's, a, there's a lot of challenges that are happening. We've seen that the government is picking winners and losers, right? So the, the big guys, the Amazons, the Walmarts, uh, those, those guys are being chosen to win in this environment. Things like restaurants and bars, movie theaters, they're losing. And so we're really in an upside down world. And so how we learn to adapt is we have to start to think differently. Okay. So let's dive into this thinking that goes into it. I mean, our assumption is as leaders, as individuals, as people, we're thinking uh, every day and we're trying to solve problems that are in front of us. What's the area of thinking that we're going to have to change if we're going to be able to keep up? Yeah. So I think from the enterprise perspective, we've really had some pretty big shakeups, right? So in the work area, we've seen a rise in unemployment. We possibly are going to see consumption decline and remote working. So we've got a whole group of people in Silicon Valley that are moving out and they're finding that they can live in more affordable places, have better lifestyles, and we're seeing this a- across the board. So if we're in the commercial real estate business and we're used to having an office building, I, I think we're going to have to think of other uses in order to make sure that we can keep those uh, properties solvent. In terms of our learning, where we're used to be able to walk down the hall, talk to people, we're now spending a lot more time on Zoom. So now are we, we're going to need skills around remote learning. 
as leaders and managers, we're going to have to be much more adept at tuning into our teams. And so social-emotional intelligence becomes really important. So, for example, if I know that I have a person and every time I talk to them, they're telling me they're working seven in the morning till midnight, that's not something that I, I want to say is a good idea. So I'm going to want to work with that person to actually do less because we'll get more. There are going to be other people that their amygdala of fear and flight and freezes is going to kick in. And I'm wanna, I want to be able to move them away from the fear base and, and more into a more equilibrium. So how we communicate is changing also. Now we've got life at home. So we've got how am I going to take a workforce and know that mom or dad might have a couple of kids that are doing distance learning and that's going to impact what's going to happen in my organization. So I think, I think the, the real key to this is that the business models of value creation at the enterprise is changing. Those models are, are, in my opinion, dated and will be outdated shortly. Likewise, I think that the model of organizational design, of hierarchy, of top-down, of dominate, you know, top-down, um, these hierarchies tend to be more bureaucratic. In some cases, they're more political. And that environment is going to need to shift. And collective intelligence and institutional memory and continuous learning, the companies who are able to deploy that and have that become core, I think are going to outperform. Well, that's a pretty big shift for somebody that, let's say, is a leader and they've been in a traditional structured organization that has what you describe as the hierarchy and those types of histories that drive how decisions are made and how communication happens. From your perspective, and you, you've you really helped a lot of organizations with radical growth and really effective change, how does, how does somebody that has that legacy mindset, that legacy thinking, navigate through the new type of thinking and the new type of approach that's required? Right. Well, there's, I think, a couple of ways. One, what we're seeing is that the big multinationals and multi-billion dollar companies are acquiring smaller companies that are more agile, that know how to pivot, that read markets more quickly. And so there's learning to be done by making those type of acquisitions. So I don't think we can take an existent big corporation and just say we're going to change it overnight. We can keep what's working and take the best of that and then start new divisions or bringing in uh, new companies. But if we're innovating new products, that we start to look at different business models. So by way of example, um, I had an opportunity to be in a talk with um, the CEO of Ben & Jerry's. And the CEO of Ben & Jerry's is part of Unilever. And one of the reasons Unilever bought that company was because of the culture and that it was irreverent and that it, that it had purpose and a culture that was driven very differently than, let's say, just a traditional consumer product that, you know, had, had some kind of a benefit to it. And so they actually now become 
a leader. But at the same time, Unilever's structure, its discipline, its core systems are very helpful for that company to grow and prosper. Um, and so there's, there's sort of that uniqueness. They also bought a company, the Shave Club, which was able to get 15% of the razor market and that Schick and Gillette had no idea they were even there. So one of the differences, for example, Procter & Gamble is what I call a brand house. So all of these brands exist under the Procter & Gamble umbrella. Unilever, on the other hand, is what I call a house of brands. It's not Unilever. It's Ben & Jerry's. It's the Shave Club. It's a group of wellness companies in personal care. It's a group of good for you in the um, food industry. So right there, having that decentralization, although it's, it's more like a holding company with Unilever, so they can deploy uh, areas of best practices. They can do some things around cost structure. But because these different brands operate independently, they're able to bring lots of best practice, new idea, and information into the fold. At Procter & Gamble, everything's done the same way. It has been for 35 years. So they've gone through seven CEOs in the last 20 years, and they're still floundering. So I think that kind of tells us that that business model is, it's tired, right? Coca-Cola, what we've seen with them in the beverage industry, they're just selling off now 250 brands. So again, maybe more of a house of brands, but the whole idea of these companies for growth was just take as many different things as you can, throw it up against the wall and see what works that business model is not going to work in today's environment. So I want to just make sure I heard you clearly. When you think about innovating the organization, and this could be huge old companies or could be even the same principles with smaller companies, it, uh, it is a strategy choice that we bring the innovation that we already see in the market through acquisition. Is that right? That's one possibility. So, for example, Pepsi bought Stacy's pita chips. There was no reason that Pepsi couldn't do that. Coca-Cola bought vitamin water. They paid $4.1 billion for a $300 plus million brand. 4.1. So it's, a, you know, it's about a 14-time multiple. You mean to tell me that colored sugar water couldn't have been done at Coca-Cola? And the answer is it can't because its bureaucratic environment has too many voices. It has too many cooks in the kitchen. It has too many different things that by the time they could ever figure it out, you know, it would be 20 years from now. And so what a lot of these companies have done is to outsource the innovation, letting entrepreneurs go into the markets when those companies can get 30 to $50 million and they've proven out a market, a big multinational like that can buy it. It almost doesn't matter what price they pay for it because with their distribution and once they put it in their system, they can blow that three, that $300 million business that was bought for 4.1 billion. They recovered all of that investment within the first 12 months. So they had a distribution capability as big as vitamin water was. And I, I didn't think anywhere I went, I couldn't find it. 
Coke had multiple places that they could put it. So, you know, from that standpoint, but let's also take a company like um, Colgate. So if you walk into a Walgreens, there's like 20 feet of Colgate toothpaste. So there's Colgate, there's Colgate with mint, there's Colgate with baking soda, there's Colgate with uh, sensitive gums. And this has been the, the old model of innovation. A, it's confusing to the customer. B, it forces Walgreens and CVS to have bigger stores than what they really need so that they don't drive the higher level of productivity per square foot. But let's talk about, so what, what is it about toothpaste that has to have these line extensions that are what I call linear? So if I were the brand manager at Colgate and I was on toothpaste, what would happen if I changed my thinking from the idea of linear line extension, which is just the toothpaste with one new ingredient, and said, you know what, the reason people buy toothpaste is social confidence. And now what I can do is I can create a category as opposed to an SKU. I can increase units per transaction, dollars per transaction. I can be something new, creating a category. I'll give you another example. Vitamin nutritional supplements. There's all of what they call the alphabet vitamins. So there's A, there's B's, there's C's, there's D's, there's E's. So what, what happens when you say, you know what, I want to take all of that fragmentation and individual product, and I want to bundle those into medical solution. So what are the seven supplements that I want for healthy heart? What are the five that I want for those who have diabetes? What are the eight ideas that I can have for um, hypertension? What are the four products that I can have for male prostate problems? All of a sudden, I'm creating a different way of viewing, and I'm creating higher purchase, more share of wallet by starting to think differently. And in every industry, we're used to the end. We hire people from our industry. It's like arranging chairs on the Titanic, right? Because we're hiring people who know what we already know. And in, in many cases, we don't hire from outside because the default thinking is they don't understand our industry. Well, that's true. But in the world in which we're playing now with the whole digital marketplace, we have to bring in new skills and new people and new ways of thinking if we want to adapt and survive. So it sounds like it's really about the language of innovation. And that begins with how we talk to ourselves. It begins with how we talk to our peers and other people in the organization. But ultimately, how we interact with and communicate with the customer, our customer. How does that play out in this process of innovation and growth? that customer communication. Yeah, well, again, I think like if we were to take, if we look at brands, right? So the, the world I grew up in, Nike is the performance brand. If Volvo is the safety brand, Red Bull is the extreme sport brand, um, right? Virgin is the irreverent brand. And so they're going to take what's normal in the industry, the standard thinking, and they're going to become the irreverent player in it. 
And so my belief is that in the, particularly in the consumer product end, that we move away from the, what I call the low common denominator, like we talked about Tide, you know, have a whiter shirt. There's nothing aspirational about that. But if you look at Red Bull and then you look at the extreme sport that the brand is, people aspire to snowboarding. They aspire to jumping out of planes in para- with parachutes, right? They aspire to do cross country on motorcycles and that sort of a thing. And so I think that's, that's really the game is who is my customer? What matters to them? Um, there's a, a whole thing around creating a persona. Who is that ideal customer? And there might be more than one. What do they read? What do they eat? What movies do they watch? What magazines? What jewelry do they buy? What are the clothing brands they like? What cars do they drive? And the more we understand that persona, that individual, the better we're able then to target product. So again, you know, when we look at business model, the old model was we'll sell to the mass market, we'll put it in in lots of brick and mortar distribution. That value model is turned on its head today because people like Walmart and Amazon and, you know, pick your, how much are you now buying online versus going to brick and mortar, right? Then the other thing is we need to collect better data. And this is one of the struggles that the more traditional companies have because their supply chain is I make a product, I put it in a Walgreens CVS or the drug channel, I put it in Whole Foods or Kroger and I'm in the food channel. Those are the guys who have the data, right? So I'm always on the back end of it. And this is how private label evolved. Those companies, you know, Amazon, it's doing its own essentials line and across all of the different product categories, they have so much data. When you see the products they put out under their own name, there's no guessing there. That is all data fact-based off of consumption, off of rate of sale, volume, velocity, gross margin, return on investment. And so that's a big deal today. We have to get better at understanding the data, the customer preference. So this is where AI is going to come in. Again, this is not a technology that for the last 25 years in the old value model we were able to take advantage of. So big data, analytic, AI, blockchain, these are all going to be technologies that the traditional companies are going to have to start to adapt to. And those, those that do it sooner than later and get up the learning curve will well outdistance, and this is proven, will well outdistance the competition. But yeah, certainly it's for the last 20 years, we've been hearing about big data. And uh, I think it's not well understood of what that really means and the impact, but we're seeing those impact in what you just described of Amazon's ability to adjust price, bring new products out. And all of that's driven by data uh, information that they have an unbelievable amount of understanding of. And so how does a smaller organization that's maybe relied on having been successful in the past, having a good relationship with their customer, how do they begin thinking about data in a different way as we move into this innovation of 
serving our customers differently? What's something they should be thinking about if they haven't really made data a priority yet? Well, I think if you're if you're currently um, putting your product through what I'm going to call traditional channels of distribution, that you start experimenting in a digital environment yourselves. So even though you might be a consumer product and you're selling it in the brick and mortar, there's nothing that keeps you from putting your own store together and having customers come and buy from you would be one thing. Another way of doing that is, to me, biohacking. So if I want to know what are the top-selling books around response to COVID-19, if I go to Amazon, I can see probably the 10 bestsellers. If I go in and I take a look at the table of contents, I can see what subject matter they're discussing because those are the subjects that were the most important, which is why they're up at the top 10. And so I think part of our, our strategic marketing is biohacking because the stuff is out there. We just have to have a different way of collecting it. We, we can't have R&D and innovation in a bubble where I grew up in a world where as a merchandiser, I came up with the ideas. We you know, went to, went to the R&D department. We worked on it together. We launched. And as we discussed earlier, in consumer product, upwards of over 80% of new products, there was never a need, never a market. No one really wanted it. And there's a lot of time and effort spent. So I think, you know, one of the things that I loved about Budweiser is they do unbelievable amounts of new ideation in very small market tests that almost no one knows they're even testing. And from that, they then can see which products deserve more time, resource, money, and which ones don't. And so I think along those lines, that's a, another way of doing it. The other is to, to see how they can partner with the channels to get more information. So, for example, with um, the grocery business, there's things like IRI and um, Gallup, and there are different data sources that are in aggregate. It's hard to know exactly what your competition is doing, but I think that's really the idea that if you can start to think different, it's the lens that you bring to the world to start to think differently and you test them and, and you'll get a feedback. Like I said, we could do toothpaste linear or we could say, gee, I wonder what happens if we did social confidence and how, what, what are the eight products that would make sense? And we could market test that in a rural area. We could market test it in Austin. You know, we can do it in different ways and we don't have to have it in 10,000 retailers we can have it in a hundred stores and get a pretty good idea so we can move quickly. And then we have vendors, right? So if we have our, our ingredient people, what are we doing to say to them, you need to bring me at least three ideas this year that you're not showing anybody else. So I have right of first refusal. So there's a whole thing that can be done on gleaning information from our ingredient people, from our component people, our label people, these are folks that get to see a lot of different things. They're not going to share what's confidential, but there's a lot happening out in an industry that they're gleaning because they're creating product 
that they're selling to you, the consumer product company, right? So I think it's that's where this curiosity and having a different lens, it's a wide angle today. It's it's not narrow. So really you're talking about innovation and you know, so we can do that through uh, intentional experiments that are designed to learn, you know, what's the response to the market. We can do it by having good partnerships with people that can bring us information and then other partnerships with people like vendors who see a different aspect of the world that we can learn from as well. So it sounds like you have to have leadership that is committed to making innovation a priority and that learning and that data and that, that testing a key priority for us. Absolutely. And I mean, here's another way of thinking about it. If you have a business and you decide that I want to grow 10% next year, you're going to have one strategic plan. If I have a business and say, I want to grow in the next 36 months, 10 times where I am today, or even five years instead of three years, I would have a very different strategic plan. So if you're used to doing your planning the way in a lot of companies, it's, it's what I call iterative and linear in its thinking. That, what happens in that world is you play by the rules that everybody else is playing by. And when you do that, the result is margin compression. So when we go in a store, right, what's everybody do? Well, it's 20% off with a coupon. It's a BOGO, buy one, get one free. Buy two, get $3 off the second one. Every one of those price manipulations is a result of having an undifferentiated product in a market. So when you look at the hair care, 30 feet of it, you know, everybody's got a tea tree oil. Everybody's got, um, you know, something that straightens hair, that curls hair, that does this, that does that. And it's really pretty uninteresting. So there's no brand loyalty. It's who's got what price today. So, but if we take a product like Swifter from Procter & Gamble, right? That was so unique. It was a category of one. There was no margin compression because it was either you were buying that, a broom or a mop. Well, it was a lot cooler to buy Swifter than either of those other two. And they were able to get a premium price. And when you can create a category, you'll have at least a nine-month lead time before anybody else figures out what it is or that you're there. And if you are big enough and can flawlessly execute, you will own 60% of the market over the lifetime of the category. So you have a lot more capability at that point of, of driving the rules of engagement. So I think these truths um, that you're explaining about how things are working in the successful organizations can, like, like other things, can be distilled down to an individual level, onto the person-by-person -person level, how do I, regardless of, you know, what role I'm in, maybe I'm a mid-manager, maybe I'm, you know, work at a church, whatever that is, how do I take these principles that you're describing around innovation, about adapting to change, about implementing this exponential growth mindset? How do I apply that to my life as, as, a, as a person? Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, there there is a whole group of things that I've done um, over the last 40 years for my own growth and development. So you, you, 
and again, that was really a high level of curiosity. So I got a master's degree in leadership and coaching, and that gave me a depth of mastery in social-emotional intelligence and psychology and attachment in neuroscience and existential thinking. And it just so widened out, um, you know, my own perspective on things. Um, I do a lot of reading. I research a couple hours every day. So I, yes, I do research in business, but I'm also researching in creative arts because that's giving me a different perspective on my own creativity, right? So I think having a wide variety of interests is another way of doing it. Finding I had was very lucky that I had some really good mentors along the way. And even in the jobs that I had, I had some great bosses that, you know, taught me a lot. And when I was bored, I would go into my boss and say, I need more work. A lot of people go, oh, I'm done. Fantastic. I think I'll relax. Right. So there was a desire on my part for excellence and mastery. And I think if you adopt a growth mindset like that, if you have that curiosity like that, you'll start to read maybe the Harvard Business Review, maybe Forbes in the business. Maybe if you're in an industry and you're not reading the trade publications because that's what marketing does and you're somewhere else in the organization, that's a way of, of you being able to demonstrate that you have this curiosity, that you're a continuous learner, that you have more dedication and you'll have probably more ability to traverse different areas in a company. So all of those are, but to seek out people who have already done what you want to do is far easier and much quicker than trying to reinvent the wheel all on your own. So, you know, we all know about networking um, and that sort of thing, but I'll give you an example. So I'm doing a, a thing on leadership right now. And there was a particular gentleman whose articles I love. And I wrote to him today and said, I've read these 12 articles from you. I'm deeply inspired. I'd love to connect and have a conversation. And if you would have an interest after we're done, I'd love to know if you'd like to be an advisor to my company. So most people would be afraid to ask. Most people wouldn't reach out right? Most people would go, well, he doesn't know me and, you know, he's well known and I'm not. And I think that ability to ask is a really big thing. A lot of people go, well, I'm not worth it. Why would anybody want to know me? And there's a whole set of beliefs that we all come to the table with. And I've done a lot of work to get beyond those mistaken beliefs. So I think that's another thing that, uh, that folks can do. Well, there's, a, there's some great nuggets there. I mean, having this personal curiosity, which begins, I believe, with asking ourselves different questions uh, and finding different variety, new experiences. There's something that happens to our brain when we're exposed to variety and novel experiences. It fires up new neurons, and that's such an important aspect of creativity. Having mentors that you mentioned that you can ask, you know, what was the path they took and how can I accelerate you know, my own path. So maybe I can learn lessons that shave five years off my uh, destination because of where they've been already and they're down the path further and then being able to ask, right? So if the author says to you, thanks for 
uh, reading my articles, but no thanks on connecting. You're no worse off, right? No harm, no foul. But, you know, the thing is, most people think, well, he would never respond. I won't ask. And he's sitting there going, why is no one asking me anything? So to make it more relevant, so you're in a, you're in a company and there's 100 people in the marketing department. How many people do you think went to the head of the marketing department and said, this is my career. This is what I'm committed to. I'm looking for a mentor. Would you be that person? It takes a pretty ugly person to say not interested. Right. Right. Now, a hundred people have that opportunity, but most of them will just sit at the desk doing what they're told to do. Right. So we know from the Harvard Business Review that upwards of 80% of people are not engaged in the work at work. How many of those people who aren't engaged take it upon themselves to go to their boss or wherever they need to go so that their work becomes more engaging? I did that over and over and over in my career. I took over a, a, a division when I was 23 years old. I had it down to three hours a day. I went into my boss and said, listen, I'm working three hours a day. I'm getting paid for eight, so I have two choices. I can go find a job for eight hours a day, or I would love it if you would train me so that I could move up. And the guy was so excited. I learned how to map territories. I learned how to set sales budgets. I learned how to do merchandising, um, you know, in terms of four. I learned the entire system because a lot of the guys who were in those jobs weren't that interested. And so I think that sets you apart in a company. So what can you do to raise your own visibility? Be ambitious, right? Do what seems so out of the ordinary. Break the rules every chance you get. Don't break them to the point you get fired. But those guardrails are there, but they have elasticity. And experiment and see no one's going to fire you for asking to do more. No one's going to fire you for asking how you could set up a, a growth plan. No one's going to fire you for having ambition that my goal the next three years is to be here. What is it that I would need to do to justify that and prove to you that I'm worthy? Well, it's, it's tremendous. And those same principles that you apply to helping a, a 50 million dollar company get to 500 million is really those same principles that I hear you describing of the individual that says, I want to have 10 times the success, however they define success, right? That doesn't mean our bank account. There's many ways to define success. But for me to have a different outcome, it means I have to change my thinking, my perspective, and my, my actions. Absolutely. And the reason I chose the middle market, this 50 to $400 million segment, I want to work with $50 million companies in 36 months to have them to 100 and 100 to 200 and 200 to 500. And the way we're going to do that is through exponential thinking. And the reason I'm saying that is my analogy is that the middle market is like Sears between Target and Walmart. So on the target part of the analogy, if you're in a middle market company, the target part of that are the VCs and the private equity guys that have deep Rolodexes, that have access to lots of talent, that have sort of, if they want to invest, they have the money to play. They're not really finance constrained. They're usually more agile. They are getting leadership from those investors. 
those investors bring uh, not only skill to the table, but they also bring resource to the table. And the Walmart part of it is the billion dollar in multinational. So what are you going to do as this mid-market company not to have the same outcome that Sears is having, which is death? And so my approach is to bring the discipline and system and thinking and innovation that might happen in a big company to those companies so that they can thrive and prosper and grow exponentially. Well, it's tremendous work to do, and it really impacts uh, a lot of lives in those organizations. And we've covered a lot of ground, uh, Dan, and you've given some great insights of how to go about thinking about innovation and growth and how we uh, work on our mindset and the things we're exposed to. For a listener who we've, we've gone on this journey together, you've shared these insights. For you, what's something that you really want to make sure people take home, that they can put to work when it comes to these principles in their life? For the individual, I'm going to come back to this idea of curiosity and that you spend some time during the day doing the research I'm talking about. And I, it's not just business research. It's, as you said, it's the novelty. It's doing something new. This is neuroplasticity. This enhance, So I would pick up a book on critical thinking. I would pick up a book on Aristotle. I'd pick up a book on Marcus Aurelius. I'd pick up a book on uh, Peter Drucker. I'd pick up a book on um, acting. How do I get to the truth of character, right? Because it's really the truth of my customer. So I think that it's having, that, that you have to plan in your day time for you and your own growth. I think you have to put a plan together on the way a company has a board of advisors or a, a board of directors. Who is your board of advisors? Who are the people that can coach you, mentor you, give you a leg up? Um, I think is really important. So that, that's something I think you can also do. And I think within your own organization, how do you stand out? You know, how do you become visible? And you become visible by asking for things. If you get a good mentor in a company that's high enough up, you're going to get put on the great projects, right? And how you get visibility in a company is being put on great projects that have great outcomes. You know, asking for leadership, not waiting. I think that's a really big deal is asking for what you want. So I'll frame it this way. If all you do is react to what's given to you, that's one life. And for me, I lead a life of intention. I intend exactly what I want, and then I ask for it, or I try to get the resource for it, but I know where I want to go, and I'm, it's, I'm very intentional. Now, that doesn't mean I don't react to what happens in life as well, but you won't have as big a life. as ven You won't have life as a great adventure if all you're going to do is react. So I think if you could spend some time journaling about your goals, your intention, you know, what mind, spirit, body, life balance, relationships, all of those areas, what is it that you want over the next 12 months? And the more you work to that and the more you see that that comes, the more motivated you are to go to the next level and up to the next level and up to the next level. Wow, that was so well said, Dan. Thank you 
for that insight. And I hope that people really caught what that message is and put some of those insights to work for them. You know, joining us today was Dan Silberberg. And Dan, thank you so much for sharing your insights and tools that we can really put to work both in our life and in our companies. If somebody wants to learn more about the work that you do and get a hold of you, tell us about your organization and how to contact you. Sure. Well, thanks, Dean. It's really been an honor to be with you. And uh, I hope that all of the people who listen to this will will take it to heart. So my company is called IntelliKey.ai, and I'll spell it. It's E-N-T-E-L-E-C-H-Y dot A-I. And they can reach me at dan at IntelliKey.ai. And our company is really focused on training the next generation of leaders. And so we actually see a new world coming where collective intelligence, uh, continuous learning, mindfulness, self-awareness, and having social-emotional intelligence so that you have a compass of who you are in the world, who you are in your business, who you are with your team, your spouse, your kids. And so our whole goal really is to bring leadership to the forefront. And the meaning behind IntelliKey, it's an Aristotle word, which basically has to do with bringing your highest potential into the world of reality so that you actually become who you're meant to become. So we're very excited to work with companies and individuals and would be happy to entertain anybody who wants to learn more. So again, thanks for having me, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you so much, Dan. It's been certainly a pleasure. I'll have your uh, email in the show notes if anybody wants to grab that and send you a message. And certainly developing the next generation of leaders, I believe, is one of the primary responsibilities that all leaders have. And so it's great work that you're doing, uh, helping enable that process. Thanks so much, Dean. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye.